This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Lord. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on Jesus. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, o Christ. Please be seated. So the other day, I took our dog Rosie to our local park. For a morning walk when I stumbled upon the scene of a stressed out young mother trying to cope with her three little children. The mom had two girls, they appeared to be around seven or eight years old, and a little boy who was just a toddler. Girls, watch out after your little brother for just a minute, the mother said, while I go back to the car to get him his mittens. And so the harried mom scurried back to the parking lot to her car while the children started exploring the playground. Initially, the girls kept a close eye on their little brother, but after a minute or two, I could see that they became bored and decided it would be more fun to take a few trips down the slide on their own. Just as they did, of course, their little brother gleefully scampered off in the other direction on his tiny, wobbly legs. Not having quite mastered the art of running, the toddler only made it about six or seven strides before he lost his balance, went sprawling, and did a headfirst face plant into the playground mulch. I immediately ran over to the little boy with Rosie in tow to make sure he was okay. The boy started wailing as soon as he realized what happened, more startled than hurt. I looked for his sisters and I could see them happily taking turns going down the slide, utterly oblivious to their screaming brother. Just then the mom returned with a panicked look on her face. He's fine, I said, handing the little boy over to her. After quickly thanking me, she turned to the girls, who now saw that they were in big trouble. How did this happen, the mom shouted. Where were you? 
And then, like a finely synchronized Swiss watch, they each turned and pointed to the other, saying in unison, it was her fault. This is what human beings do. When we find ourselves in a mess, we look for someone else to blame. It is a pattern of behavior as old as our first lesson from Genesis. The reason the story of Adam and Eve has such staying power is because it captures with profound simplicity the human impulse to test boundaries and then when the you-know-what hits the fan to dodge accountability and shift the blame elsewhere. God creates a perfect garden. He places man and woman in it, invites us to delight in its beauty, to care for it, to enjoy each other's company. He gives us everything we could possibly want. There's just one rule. God tells us to stay clear of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. And yet, being curious creatures, we can't help but wonder what it might be to be like God, to taste of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, the tree that God reserves for himself. So we yield to the serpent's tempting invitation and we eat. The great consequence for humanity of violating God's trust, as our first lesson teaches, is that we are exposed. We become vulnerable, literally made aware of our nakedness before God. And out of fear for what we have done, we hide. And then, if you read just a little further on in chapter 3 of Genesis, when God goes walking in the garden in search of Adam and Eve, the blame game begins. Where are you, God asks. Adam answers, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God responds, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Adam replies, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Notice how sly Adam's response is. He not only blames Eve for his transgression, but implicitly he blames God for giving Adam this temptress in the first place. Moreover, Adam pretends that he had no choice but to eat, as if Eve somehow twisted his arm. Eve, for her part, doesn't do a whole lot better. When God confronts her, she says merely, the serpent tricked me and I ate. Like Adam, she too looks for someone else to blame and seems utterly unwilling to own up to her own freely made choice in this sorry ordeal. This urge to blame others for our own messes runs deep in the human heart. We call the phenomenon scapegoating. What you may not know is that the word scapegoat has its roots in the Bible, in a ritual of sacrifice practiced by the ancient Israelites. It is described in Leviticus chapter 16. On the Day of Atonement, a priest would bring two goats to the temple. 
One was slaughtered and offered to God in thanksgiving. The other goat was laid hands on and then sent into the wilderness. This second goat is known as the escaping goat. And the reason the priest lays hands on it is to place all the sins of the people from the previous year onto the animal. The goat is then beaten with reeds and thorns and driven out into the desert. The ritual was a vividly symbolic act that helped to rid the people of the burden of their sins and cleanse the community. Instead of owning their own sins, this ritual allowed the people to export them elsewhere, in this case onto an innocent animal, literally a scapegoat. The Christian philosopher René Girard has studied this dynamic of scapegoating across cultures and argues that in one form or another, this type of ritual is nearly ubiquitous among social groups. The image of the scapegoat powerfully mirrors and reveals the universal but largely unconscious human need to transfer our guilt onto something or someone else by singling that other out for unmerited negative treatment. We can't bear to acknowledge that our plight may be our own doing, and so we assign culpability elsewhere. Now, you may think that we modern-day Lutherans are too sophisticated to ever fall prey to such a primitive scapegoating mentality. Yet, think for a minute about our own country's history, filled with bigotry of all kinds. Consider our collective treatment of Native American peoples during colonial America, the institution of slavery in the Jim Crow South, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, violence towards gays and lesbians, the warehousing and sterilization of the mentally disabled during the early 20th century, and so on. We are, it turns out, quite skilled at blaming all sorts of others for our problems. And it is not just history that convicts us, our current political climate is also so rife with scapegoating that one wonders where the heart and soul of this nation has gone. The right blames the left, the left blames the right, and those of us in the center blame both the right and the left. There are generational divides as well. Millennials blame boomers for a staggering deficit, lack of economic opportunity, and skyrocketing housing costs. And we boomers respond by calling the millennials a pampered and narcissistic generation that doesn't know what hard work and sacrifice are about. We employ such scapegoating in our personal lives too, I'm sorry to say. I'd be happier if only I weren't trapped by my husband or wife in this loveless marriage. My boss doesn't appreciate everything I have to offer and keeps me from achieving my potential. Why don't our kids come visit and show their parents some gratitude? My friends don't treat me as generously as I treat them, and so on. Everyone else, it seems, is to blame for our problems except us. The whole point of God 
sending his son into our world is to break this insidious cycle of human disobedience, deception, scapegoating, and irresponsibility. When Jesus is condemned by Rome and Jerusalem for disrupting the established power structures by caring for the poor, healing the sick, and daring to love the unlovable, he becomes the world's ultimate scapegoat. Yet instead of asking his heavenly father to vindicate his innocence by destroying his oppressors, Jesus freely and graciously accepts the blame for our collective guilt. And he does so because he loves us and wants to free us from the prison we have created for ourselves. Jesus models what the theologian H. Richard Niebuhr calls the responsible human self, the person who not only will not blame others for his predicament or for the plight of the world, but who will in fact humbly sacrifice himself and offer his very life to right its wrongs, heal its hurts, reveal its beauty, and tell its truth. And this, of course, is the upshot of our gospel text, which we always hear on the first Sunday of Lent, Christ confronting the devil in the wilderness and resisting his many temptations. In standing up to Satan, Jesus does what Adam and Eve could not do. Jesus refuses to make a compact with evil and thereby unwinds the story of the fall so that a wayward humanity might be restored to right relationship with God and his creation and each other. In doing so, Jesus also invites us to stop blaming others for our predicament and to examine ourselves instead, and to do so with real honesty. And that, my friends, is the task of Lent, to look inward with as much clarity and candor as we can muster. It is not an easy thing to do, to look yourself in the mirror, to stand naked before God. But here is the extraordinary thing. Here is the good news. When we do this, when we acknowledge our failings and seek Christ's help, forgiveness is ours for the asking. Mercy is ours for the asking. God will have us back. God will welcome us home, back to the garden, and love us for all eternity if we just sincerely ask. By the way, regarding that harried mom Rosie and I encountered in the park, after her daughters sought to point the finger at each other for their little brother's accident, the mom looked at me and couldn't help but smile. Then she walked over to the girls and said, I'm sure that was an honest mistake that will never happen again. Right, sweethearts? 
Now go apologize to your little brother for losing track of him, and then we'll have a family hug. It was a small yet important example of the good news of Christ in action in the world. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.